I'm Douglas Hardy and this is Guardian Daily on Monday the 16th of November. In today's show, a reality check from Barack Obama on the Copenhagen climate talks. I think this is just an acceptance that Copenhagen cannot achieve what everyone had hoped it would achieve. We hear about growing demands for an end to the death sentence in Texas, where three men are scheduled to die this week by lethal injection. And why the sport of boxing is booming. People who 10 years ago were saying boxing's barbaric and dangerous and now actually saying it's one of the sports that can reach out to, to young kids, especially from disadvantaged backgrounds who are maybe struggling in other areas of their lives. First of all, though, Bill Overton has the news headlines and a review of the papers. A 52-year-old man's been charged with a series of rapes and burglaries that took place across south-east London over the past 17 years. Delroy Grant will appear in court today accused of 11 rapes and indecent assaults on elderly people, as well as 11 burglaries since 1992. He was arrested in a police search for a man they call the Night Stalker. President Obama started a visit to China on his Asian tour with an open meeting for students in Shanghai. He's been telling them the US say will always work for freedom of expression and political activity. He goes on to the capital, Beijing, to talk to Chinese leaders, but will make time for a little tourism to see the Great Wall and the Forbidden City, home of the former Chinese emperors. In Australia, the Prime Minister has made an historic apology to thousands of British children from poor homes sent to Australia for a better life. Instead, they went through abuse and neglect. 150,000 children as young as three were sent to Australia and Canada. Kevin Rudd apologised to a gathering of survivors in the capital, Canberra. To say to you, the forgotten Australians, and those who were sent to our shores as children without their consent, that we are sorry. Sorry that as children you were taken from your families and placed in institutions where so often you were abused. Sorry for the physical suffering, the emotional starvation, and the cold absence of love, of tenderness, of care. Sorry for the tragedy, the absolute tragedy, of childhoods lost. Australian PM Kevin Rudd. One in five children aged 10 and 11 say they've been victims of cyberbullying. They complain of taunts, threats and abuse on the internet and mobile phones. Parents are being urged to supervise their children's internet access by the Anti-Bullying Alliance. There's a wide range of stories in the morning papers, but the Sun and the Mirror choose the arrest of the man charged with a series of assaults on the elderly in London. Night stalk rapist held, that's the Sun. The Mirror claims he's being questioned about 200 different attacks and burglaries. The paper claims the man being hunted would cut phone lines to homes before breaking in and removing light bulbs to make himself harder to identify. Politics still dominate many front pages, though. The Lib Dem leader Nick Clegg is interviewed in The Independent. He says we should cancel this week's Queen's speech to save democracy. Instead, there should be an emergency programme of reform to clean up politics and restore trust in MPs. The Financial Times leads with new measures that will be outlined in the Queen's speech to control financial wrongdoing and to curb bankers' bonuses. FSA given extra clout to punish city crime, that's the headline. The Times says the speech will include several populist measures on health and education to show the difference between Labour and the Conservatives. It says Brown signals start of bitter election campaign. And most of the sports pages lead on England football and the worry for manager Fabio Capello about his goalkeeper, Portsmouth's David James. As the Mirror puts it, Fab fears James won't make it. Capello, get fit or you're out of the World Cup. But the Mail and the Telegraph are much more worried about rugby with photos of a grim-faced Martin Johnson. The question asked in the Telegraph is pretty blunt. What's wrong with England? For that story and more, go to guardian.co.uk. 
Time has run out to secure a legally binding climate deal at Copenhagen, and world leaders should start working on a more realistic agreement. That's the message from US President Barack Obama, who addressed the Asia-Pacific Economic Forum in Singapore at the weekend. He wants to see a two-stage process that would delay a legal pact until next year. The alternative could be a total breakdown in the negotiations. I've been speaking with our environment correspondent Jonathan Watts, who says the president's comments echo what other leaders have been hinting at. We've seen in recent weeks uh, a number of world leaders line up and play down expectations for Copenhagen. Um, Contrary to what we heard at the start of the year when everyone was telling us that Copenhagen is the last chance for the world to agree on a replacement of the Kyoto Protocol. Talks to that end have faltered. In the US, the Senate has not passed climate legislation. And so uh, I think this is just an acceptance that Copenhagen cannot achieve what everyone had hoped it would achieve. And that therefore, um, rather than letting it fail completely, it's important to change the nature of what's expected and to come up with something that's political and aspirational rather than legal and binding. So what is the next best thing then? What can we hope for? Well, I think that remains to be negotiated and seen. According to the the Danish prime minister, who is the, the, the host of the talks and the chairman of the talks, he flew overnight Uh, for a breakfast meeting with uh, US President Barack Obama and 19 other Asia-Pacific leaders to present uh, his plan for a sort of scaled-down Copenhagen, if you like. And, you know, he, he, he tried to talk it up and be as upbeat as possible about what could still be achieved. And he said it might not be legally binding, but essentially there'll be a two-step process. Uh, at Copenhagen, leaders, or at least their representatives, will try to thrash out some commitments for reducing emissions, for improving uh, forestry cover, uh, for technological transfer, uh, for financing countries to deal with climate change. But actually the legally binding details will have to be thrashed out. He said a new date should be set uh, probably in the middle of next year. I mean, at this stage, it's not even clear which uh, world leaders will be attending. We had Ed Miliband yesterday uh, saying that this is a vital point, especially for Barack Obama to attend. I mean, how likely is it that all these world leaders are actually going to turn up? We still don't know. know, Barack Obama has said, I will go if it looks like my presence will move something along. And I suspect what we'll get is a situation whereby all the world leaders will have their jets fueled and on the tarmac ready to go if it looks like something will emerge that is significant enough for them to come back and say, look, we achieved something. But uh, we're, we're, in a, we're in a situation we didn't expect. The big Copenhagen deal uh, in, in the terms that everyone had been expecting at the start of the year is definitely not going to happen. So what will be the small Copenhagen deal? Will it be a very practical, realistic acceptance of what can be achieved and and nudge things forward in in a way that might satisfy public opinion or will it just be a lot of hot air and a big fudge that postpones all the difficult decisions to a, a later point and absolutely frustrates everyone i think that that might be the consideration that decides whether world leaders will go or not and so there is still the prospect that the whole the whole process may just break down and we might get nothing I think given the huge amount of effort that has gone into it, um, I mean, for years, this is not just a case of months, 
it would be calamitous if the whole thing broke down completely. I think uh, it's also fair to say that there is a lot of uh, good things happening as a result of these negotiations taking place at all. World leaders are discussing these at a higher level. Uh, their position on the agenda has, uh, has changed. Um, a lot of uh, investment is geared towards low-carbon economies now. And I think what's needed is a very strong political signal. That's the best thing now that could come out of Copenhagen. But you could not say for sure that this won't be a failure yet. There's a huge amount of uncertainty. There's enormous amount at stake. You know, these discussions, whether they're finalised in Copenhagen or next year or beyond that, are essentially setting the direction of the whole world for the next 30 or 40 years. So if it just takes another six months or a year to make a good, strong agreement, uh, it might well be worth it, uh, according to many observers. Uh, and certainly it would be better than setting something in place that's weak and doesn't last for very long. Jonathan Watts there, and you can keep up with the countdown to Copenhagen, which begins on December the 7th at guardian.co.uk slash environment. Also on The Guardian's website today... Call girl blogger Belle Dujour reveals her real identity as a scientist in guardian.co.uk slash technology. Recession hit private schools are offering incentives to try to keep numbers up. Details on that at guardian.co.uk slash education. And Shirley Bassey teams up with Manic Street Preachers and Rufus Wainwright. Read the review of her new album at guardian.co.uk slash culture. United States now, where there are growing demands for a moratorium on executions in Texas. Support for capital punishment in the southern state has been shaken by judicial scandal, overturned convictions, and the possibility that at least one innocent man has been executed. The issue has been brought to a head by the fact that three men are scheduled to die there by lethal injection this week. Here's our U.S. correspondent, Chris McGreal. It's a reflection of something that's happening across the country, principally driven by a significant number of exonerations, nearly 140 so far, of prisoners on, on death row in various states, uh, largely because of DNA testing, the introduction of, of new scientific evidence has shown that a lot of these men are innocent. Um, in Texas, uh, specifically, there's a case of a man who was convicted and executed several years ago for an arson attack on his own home, which killed his three young daughters. That case, although it hasn't, uh, isn't specifically a DNA issue, it's, it is a scientific issue, the whole body of evidence against him has been thrown into serious doubt by uh, reinvestigation, and it may turn out that this is uh, the first case in which it can be proven that an innocent man was executed. So how are these uh, anti-death penalty activists making their feelings felt there? The demand principally now is for a moratorium. Uh, it's partly uh, be because of the arson case I've just talked about, but in, in Texas alone, in, in Dallas County alone, there have been 24 exonerations of people serving long prison sentences through DNA testing. Uh, various groups are now coming forward. Um, there's, a, there's a group called the Innocence Project, which has been at the forefront of the scientific investigations. Uh, they are working with uh, some attorney generals and others 
But really what we're seeing is a change in attitude amongst the Texas public in some cases. A district attorneys report that the juries are now more reluctant to impose death sentences. They'd rather go for life without parole. District attorneys themselves are less likely to pursue it, partly because they don't want the political and financial costs of failing to, to secure it, but also because they themselves are seeing that within their jurisdictions there have been innocent people freed, not necessarily from death row, but from prison for other crimes. Um, and I think there's just a, been a shaking of confidence overall. And this issue is particularly in focus in Texas this week, isn't it? Yes, there are three executions in Texas over over three days this week. Texas still executes nearly half of all the people executed in the United States. And whilst none of these three cases is really in doubt, at least uh, in the minds of prosecutors and, and groups like the Innocence Project, I think the, the scale of the, uh, of the killings, the state-sanctioned killings in Texas, adds to the pressure on the state to call a halt. And do you think there's a realistic prospect in the foreseeable future of a change in this law, or will it take longer than that? No, I don't think anybody foresees in Texas an end to the death penalty or or any of the states in the South. Uh, but what I do think is that, that that two things are possibly on the cards. One is a change in the way that the judiciary handles it. It's, a, it's an elected judiciary in Texas, and there's a feeling that because it's highly politicized and because judges actually run on a platform of being pro-death penalty, that has done a lot to undermine the, the judicial uh, checks and balances against the miscarriage of justice. That's now under scrutiny. Um, and I think that whilst we probably wouldn't see a moratorium in Texas anytime soon, there'll probably be a greater willingness to revisit uh, cases to put executions on hold, although not necessarily with this governor, Rick Perry, who's come out fighting on behalf of the death penalty. Chris McGreal speaking to us from the United States. Coming up later in the show, Madoff memorabilia makes a million. First, though, new figures reveal that the sport of boxing is undergoing a dramatic resurgence with tens of thousands of people taking part in schools and gyms across the UK each week. Boxing was once derided as dangerous and barbaric and there were regular calls for it to be banned. Now it's gone from pariah to praiseworthy and politicians and educational experts are lining up to say that the sport instills self-esteem and gets rid of aggression which may otherwise be used on the street. And the Royal Society if the prevention of accidents ranks it as less dangerous than rollerblading, gymnastics and horse riding. I asked our reporter Matthew Taylor about the scale of the boom in boxing. Well, I think the most striking figure is probably that four years ago there were 20 schools in the country offering boxing. And this year that's gone up to 2,000. So it really is quite dramatic figures we're talking about. And it's not just in schools, it's also in gyms around the country. There seems to be a huge increase in numbers of people taking up this on all levels from... Um, a way to keep fit to actually competing at a fairly serious level so why what's behind it why is it suddenly why is it suddenly increased so dramatically in popularity well i'm not absolutely sure and no one else seems to be absolutely sure i mean the aba point to a a rise in funding from fifty thousand pounds four years ago to i think 4.7 million this year more importantly perhaps i think there's a change in attitude among politicians and policymakers People who 10 years ago were saying boxing's barbaric and dangerous are now actually saying 
it's one of the sports that can reach out to, to young kids, especially from disadvantaged backgrounds who are maybe struggling in other areas of, 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 of their lives. So which way around did that come? Are politicians now saying that it's great because it's more popular or is there actually evidence behind it to show that it is, you know, it does reduce perhaps aggression out in the street if people take it out in the ring? Well, I certainly think I wouldn't ever say that politicians weren't jumping on the bandwagon. But um, I think that what, what's really happened is that schools and community groups have tried boxing and they've realised that it works. They've seen the results and the results, they've talked to other clubs and other schools and it's spread in an almost organic way. Um, and once that's happened, then the politicians have realised that and it's perhaps that way around rather than top down it's probably grassroots up and it, I mean it wasn't just politicians who, who kind of um, you know decried it uh, there was kind of evident medical evidence showing that it was incredibly dangerous but there are now uh, new statistics which show that other sports uh, horse riding for example are in fact more dangerous is that also a contributory factor oh absolutely yeah I think well I think there's always some confusion about which parts of boxing were dangerous um, professional boxing was and still is very dangerous most people would say because it but in amateur boxing with the head headgear and the, the way that it's scored there's always been an argument that amateur boxing has never been as dangerous as being perceived the latest stats from the royal society for the prevention of accidents says that it's 75th most dangerous sport behind stuff like you say like gymnastics and and rollerblading slightly bizarrely so um yeah it, I, I think that has helped persuade people that this isn't dangerous and barbaric and uh, also i guess another factor is uh, women's boxing it's uh, now going to be an olympic sport well i think there's a huge i mean there are 150,000 people who box regularly now in this country. 115,000 of those are young people, and around I think 40,000 of them are women. So it's a, it, women are a significant number, and and the ABA say that the biggest growth area is for girls between 11 and 17. And there's a real sense of um, urgency and optimism about women's boxing, not least because it's going to become um, part of the London Olympics in 2012. And I mean, you mentioned the, the difference between professional and uh, the amateur sport, but I guess uh, you know. David Hayes' victory is only uh, going to serve to increase interest in the sport at an amateur level. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I think those are the big headlines. They get the big headlines, they get the big newspaper stories, and that's where, where a lot of the, the attention is. And I think that's, for some people, that's how they first get interested in boxing. I think they're calling the gym on the back of what they've seen on television or in the newspapers. And so successes like David Hayes' um, two weeks ago is, is, it would definitely help point people towards boxing. Matthew Taylor there. Now, valuation has always been an elastic concept in anything touching the fraudulent financier Bernard Madoff. But even he might have balked at the lofty prices paid for his personal belongings by souvenir hunters. Property seized from him and his wife Ruth has raised more than a million dollars in an auction held at the Manhattan Sheraton Hotel. Our reporter Andrew Clark was there. Well, it was, it was an excitable and noisy auction at New York's Sheraton Hotel. You might have expected in a situation like this uh, for people to have adopted a rather somber approach. After all, we're talking about hundreds of items that are essentially stolen property and a fraudster who's ruined thousands of lives. But in fact, um, it was a room full of enthusiastic souvenir hunters together with some fairly serious collectors who felt that there would be long-term investment value in buying something with Bernie Madoff's name attached to it. What were the highlights then? What were the kind of most uh, unusual items and the prices that they fetched? Well, one item that um, attracted a lot of attention was a, a New York Mets baseball jacket with uh, Madoff uh, emblazoned on the back, uh, which was sold for $14,500. That was a gift to Bernie Madoff by uh, the owner of the New York Mets, who, who in fact ended up losing a great deal of money invested with the fraudster. Um, there was also a, uh, a life belt from Bernie Madoff's boat, 
which is called Bull, um, and that life belt fetched $7,500, was bought by a, a Wall Street hedge fund manager. There were hordes of Rolex watches, which seemed to be a particular favorite of Madoff, and, and his wife seemed to have a, an enormous collection of uh, Gucci and Prada leather purses and handbags, which went one after the other for hundreds or thousands of dollars. And do you get any feeling from perhaps people who have lost money? That, I mean, this is kind of making him into a celebrity again, really, isn't it? Well, yeah, perhaps, but I, I haven't heard any objections raised to this. I mean, I think there's very much an attitude um, among those who lost money that uh, they're glad to see all these belongings taken away from Madoff's family, who are still the focus of suspicion, even though they haven't faced any criminal charges. Um, Madoff's wife has uh, been evicted from her various homes and is now said to be shopping for a, a much more uh, modest apartment in Manhattan. I think the humiliation of this perhaps appeals to some of those who lost money. The, the humiliation that the Madoffs are facing in this sort of thing appeals to some of those who lost money at his hands. Andrew Clark reporting from New York. And that is all for this edition of Guardian Daily from me, Douglas Hardy, and the producers Ian Chambers and Tim Maybe. Goodbye for now. Thank you.